Reading from the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you, was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, come. Come and open us to the fiery passion of your love. Give us grace to experience closeness and presence. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's always an honor to be invited back to preach in a congregation. Uh, The first invitation could just simply represent a momentary lack of discernment. But the second invitation is on purpose. And so I thank Tim and Tyler for the honor of entrusting this time to me. Now, before we dive into the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, I want to settle an age-old controversy that has spoiled many family dinners. Ready? Sensuous is the nice word that refers to the senses, and sensual is the sketchy word that points to passions and pleasures. Got it? That should make Thanksgiving dinner much easier. You're welcome. Now, having settled the great sensuous, sensual controversy, we come to the Song of Solomon and discover that it's both sensuous in that it's filled with all of these references to the senses, and it is sensual. It celebrates beauty, passion, and various tactile experiences. So, you might want to keep it away from your teenagers. I mean, we don't want our sons leaning toward their prom dates and whispering in their ears, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Not to mention cheeks like halves of pomegranate, a neck like a tower, breasts like two fawns, a navel like a rounded bowl, and a belly like a heap of wheat. (laughs) Let's save all of that for date night with our wives. (laughs) Now, while Song of Solomon can be risque, the book gloriously celebrates romantic love, both sensuously and sensually. 
Solomon passionately celebrates his beloved's beauty. Now, short rabbit trail. I'm not going to go very far. Does it seem odd to anyone else that the Lord chose the man with 700 wives and 300 concubines to write the love poetry that he intended to put in the Bible? Just wondering. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, Solomon celebrates his beloved, and his beloved celebrates Solomon with the same ferocious desire. Now, even without appreciating all the metaphors, we understand clearly what's going on in the book of Song of Solomon. And there's no place in there, there's no hint at any point where the beloved or the groom are thinking to themselves, vanity of vanities, about what they're celebrating. Or, meh, it's okay. When you read the Song of Solomon, you're in the realm of pure and utter delight. No one is thinking, it's all right. Like Adam breaking into song when he meets Eve. This is pure celebration. From navels to noses, eyes to thighs, chests, breasts, lips, and cheeks, everything. Pure and utter utter delight. Now, Sherry and I highly recommend romance, and we're suckers for a good romantic movie, especially if it's written, a comedy written by Nora Ephron and stars Meg Ryan. How can Sleepless in Seattle be 30 years old this year? That's crazy. We cheer when the couple overcomes all the obstacles and misunderstandings, their pride and prejudice, so to speak, and finally realize they were meant to be together. At least we cheer if they don't end up in bed unwed. Uh. And that's the problem with romantic love as is experienced in our culture. Sensual desire, romantic passion, becomes self-authenticating. Have you heard anybody say, how can anything that feels so good be bad? Well, try to live on Oreos for a year. It becomes an excuse for illicit physical intimacy. Passion ends up taking the place of the hard and transformative work of a real relationship. As if what happens in bed magically makes up for a lack of friendship or conversation or vulnerability or confession or forgiveness or self-sacrifice. In other words, real love. Romantic love expressed in passion and pleasure was never meant to be everything. It was never even meant to be the main thing. It was meant to be a servant, not a master. But in our culture, romantic love has overflowed its bounds. What God created to be a good thing, we have made into the ultimate thing. What God created to serve a lifelong vowed commitment we have made into an idol that demands our service. The problem, then, isn't sensuality. 
It's idolatry. And as with all idolatry, it's based on a false promise. Namely, that romantic love will lead us effortlessly to happily ever after. It won't. It's a false promise made by a false God. Now, our idolizing romance doesn't make it evil. Romance, in its proper place, has a twofold God-given purpose. To serve and to point. To serve real love and to point beyond itself. The love that the lover and beloved enjoy in the Song of Solomon is romantic love. But there's a deeper love, a sealed love, that we see most clearly at the end of the book in today's passage. So the beloved says to her lover, the wife says to the groom, the bride says to the groom, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Set me as a seal. Now I want you to notice carefully. She doesn't say set my love as a seal. She doesn't say, set your love as a seal. She says to her beloved, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. Me, not my body, me as a person. Now in Solomon's day, the seal was used to claim something as one's own. So if you were a merchant and you were on a journey, you would go someplace you would say, hey, I want to buy all of this timber, and I'll bring a wagon to take it to the ship this afternoon. And then you would set your seal on the timber. You would make your mark on all of that wood, and you'd say, this is now mine. I've paid for it. It belongs to me. The beloved is saying, set me as a seal on your heart. Because we belong to each other. Earlier in the Song of Solomon, she'll say, I am his and he is mine. This is a love that is saying, as long as we both shall live, not as long as our love shall last. That's idolatry. But the vowed, committed love she's asking for from her beloved, set me as a seal upon your heart, is the love that will last a lifetime. And here's the great wonder of it all. It's not a romantic love that will keep our committed love alive. We've all known, folks, that once the romance was gone, they began to say, you know, I don't think we're right for each other. I think we've outgrown each other. I think we need to move on. I think that this thing we thought we had, we don't have anymore. And so it's time for us to go find other people. Romantic love will not keep committed love alive, but I will tell you that committed love can keep romantic love alive. 
in the ebb and flow of our marriages, there are plenty of times where we think to ourselves, well, I guess that part's over. When your third child has gotten up for the fourth time at night, for the fourth day in a row, it's really not likely that you're going to roll over towards each other and say, you know what would really be great right now? Reading Song of Solomon to each other. In fact, if one spouse rolls to the other and makes eyes, the other one is likely to say, what in the world are you thinking? But here's the deal. Committed love will get you through that patch and to the place where, rested, you may roll over in the middle of the night and read Song of Solomon to each other. Romantic love will not keep committed love alive, but committed love may very well keep romantic love going. She says, set me as a seal. But in that, there's also this claim, for love is strong as death. Love is strong, or some translations, stronger than death. Now, in one sense, the claim is clearly true. People we love die, but our love for them doesn't die with them. We love them in our memories. But in another way, it's patently false. I loved my dad, but he died. My love for him wasn't stronger than death. We know of couples who passionately love each other all their lives, and then a spouse dies. Love didn't keep that person alive. So what is it that we're looking for? It's a claim, actually, that points beyond our earthly, mortal existence. What if there was a lover who loved with a love that actually, literally is stronger than death, that has, to, has the power to overpower death? And what if romance's false promise of happily ever after could actually be fulfilled by someone else? What if there really is a happily ever after? It just doesn't come after the kiss of Prince Charming, or it doesn't come after the sly wink of Cinderella at the ball. It comes from someone else. The passion of the lovers in Song of Solomon points beyond itself to another love and to another marriage. A marriage that, as Jesus says, ends all marriage. He says that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There'll come a day when God's plan comes to fruition at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And all of creation will celebrate, as we heard earlier. And in that moment, all of our passions, all that we've been directing towards our beloved, will be drawn together and directed to Jesus. A time is coming when all of our passion and desire will be focused to Jesus, our true beloved, and taken up into something greater. It's not like 
marriage will come to an end at the wedding feast of the Lamb because it's too strong. It's not like God is in heaven saying, well, we can't let any of that sensual stuff into heaven because that'll just mess up everything. God is saying that sensual stuff, it's good as training wheels, but there's a love that absorbs it, that draws it in, that's bigger than it, that's more amazing. Now here's the challenge. We can't imagine that in our minds. We're like squares, two-dimensional, trying to imagine being cubes, three-dimensional, or circles, trying to imagine being spheres. As soon as we hear the words, we're like, I don't, I don't have a place in my brain big enough for that. But our passion, our romantic love, points to something so amazing that even our best moments with our spouses, the most intimate time, the time you feel the most vulnerable and the most known and the most loved, is just a slight hint to what Jesus is offering at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The transformation of our sensual desire in the resurrection is because what's happening in the resurrection is too powerful for our experience to hold it. Our passions are transformed. So what do we do with all of this? Well, first of all, for those who are married, enjoy romance. Keep the spark of life. Know each other fully. Love each other fully, as Tyler was preaching on last week. Enjoy each other fully. Secondly, don't believe the false promise of happily ever after. Until the marriage feast of the Lamb, our marriages will have peaks and valleys. They'll require tons of forbearance, patience, forgiveness. In a word, love. Self-sacrificing for better, for worse, until death do us part, love. It's this love that's the foundation of a great marriage, not passion. Third, likewise, if you're unmarried, don't believe the happily ever after depends on Prince Charming's kiss. Romance is not the end-all and be-all. You are already joyfully, passionately loved by Jesus. He delights over you with loud singing, as the prophet Zephaniah puts it. Jesus' passionate, joyful love for you bubbles up into song that resounds through all of creation. Know that love. Finally, for all of us then, unmarried or married, let us look to Jesus, our true beloved, the only one who truly knows us and loves us fully. Let's set our hearts on the wedding feast of the Lamb when every impediment to union with Jesus will be removed and love will prove itself to be stronger than death. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we say with our lips over and over that you love us. But Lord, I pray that you would give us an intuition, an insight into the depth and the passion and the ferocity of that love. So Holy Spirit, would you come and open our hearts as fully as possible to the experience of your passionate love. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.